Dear listener, if you're a Ruby on Rails developer or an aspiring Rails developer, I want to tell you about a resource I've created that I guarantee can help you become a better Rails developer, probably. I want to give you this resource for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it, but first, a little background. I've worked at a lot of jobs in the past where they had a certain class of problems. Their code was messy and hard to understand, which meant it took forever to make any changes. They couldn't refactor and clean up their code because it was just too risky to do so. There was no way to know you weren't breaking something. Deployments were also quite scary. We didn't have any automated tests, so each deployment had to be preceded with a round of manual testing which wasn't always very thorough. Not to mention, manual testing meant that we couldn't deploy with any reasonable frequency, and therefore each deployment was huge, which made the problem even worse. And nobody wants to work at a place like that, so we had trouble attracting and retaining good people. It's no fun to work at a place from which all the smart people have fled. The problem at these places, or at least one of the main problems, was that they didn't have strong testing practices. I'm willing to bet, dear listener, that you've worked somewhere that has had those same kinds of problems. Maybe you even work someplace like that right now. And you want it to get better, but maybe you don't know how to write tests. And maybe the people you work with don't know how either, or maybe they do, but they don't have time to teach you. That's where I come in. I've created a guide called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. You can find it at railstestingguide.com. I've been teaching Rails testing for years, and so I've seen all the common Rails testing questions. Here are a few examples. Which test framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? How do I add tests to an existing Rails project? The Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing covers these questions and several others. To get the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Hey, today I'm here with Alex Ivanchik. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So uh, my name's Alex, and I've uh, been at Gusto as a software engineer for about almost six years now. And uh, uh, for a long time, I was on the benefits team doing products work. And I have uh, recently, as of like about a year ago, I transitioned to the product infrastructure team where I'm working on um, helping to modularize our large code bases. And you might know, I wonder if we know some of the same people. Um, yes. So in the spring, I put on Sin City Ruby and we had two speakers from Gusto actually. 
um, Kelly Sutton and Ivy Evans. And then I also happen to know Brandon Weaver, who now works at Gusto. Do you know? Do you know yeah. any of those people? All three of them, yeah. All three of them are on uh, the product infrastructure team. Ivy's working on the uh, another work stream dealing with um, improving our CI at the moment. And uh, Kelly and Brandon are also working on the modularization team, uh, which is which is pretty cool. So I'm excited to to join the join good company here. Yeah, nice. Um, so what I was thinking we could maybe talk about is, is that topic of, um, large rails applications and how they grow and how to keep things under control as things grow. And for a bit of context, I found you, Alex, because, uh, you know, sometimes I, I fish through the past rails conf talks to try to find podcast guests because, I don't. I. I never like to. I, I don't particularly like to invite people just out of the blue if they don't have something about them that says they're the kind of person who likes to do public things. You know, I've done it before, and like sometimes people feel weird about it. So I, I figure if you've spoken at a conference, you at least are the kind of person who's good with putting yourself out there some amount. And so I, I, it kind of makes sense if you speak at a conference, you're probably okay with being on a podcast too. Um, anyway, that's how I found you. And you gave a talk at RailsConf that you can probably obviously describe it better than I can. Um, can you share what that talk was about? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and just a, a note on, on the previous, uh, as far as being the type of person, you know, we're saying that I'm a little nervous and at the same time, uh, encourage anyone who doesn't maybe feel like the type of person who can give a talk or be on a podcast to feel comfortable going outside their comfort zone and exploring new things. Uh, cause, uh, you know, you don't only have to do it if you're comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, if we can, if we can just talk about that for just a second, I always encourage people to, to give to, you know, if you're the kind of person who wants to give talks someday, absolutely. not, not everybody is obviously, but if you are, I highly encourage you to just get out there and get started because some people I think wait until they feel like they're an expert on a topic or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but you don't have to be an expert. Um, obviously, you don't want to be saying things that are just factually incorrect, but I think there's a low risk of that because you know you you can tell when you're like saying things that that you don't actually know anything about. You can you can sure. keep it, and you can be completely open about it and be like, "Hey, for example, uh, I'm going to give a talk on on Docker. I've only used Docker for a week." Just so you guys know, that's the extent of my experience. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share what I've learned, but that's where I'm coming from. People will totally get that. Um, and there's also like a certain great value, I think, in getting a fresh perspective from somebody who's just making their first contact with a, with a certain technology, for example, um, as opposed to those experts who have the curse of knowledge, they, they're so familiar with it that now they actually suck at teaching because they can't imagine what it's like to be a beginner. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. You know, I think uh, for this talk that, that I gave, we are we are learning. You know, we're learning about what it takes to scale a large Rails app. And a, a part of the talk was all about presenting our learnings, presenting our work in progress that is scaling a big Rails app and really trying to invite and encourage the broader community to give us feedback. You know, where can we improve? Where have maybe, where do we have, uh, you know, spots that we're not seeing something that others might be seeing? Um, Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll share a brief bit of context from my end. Um, and you and I talked pre-show and I said that my idea of a large Rails app is probably different from your idea of a large Rails app because I understand Gusto's code base is just huge. One of the biggest Rails code bases in the world, I understand. Um, my code base is is maybe big in the sense that like it's one of the... Uh, I don't even know if it's one of the bigger code bases I've worked on, but I, I'll just say it's not tiny. Um, sometimes I I like to use like number of database tables as a proxy. I haven't checked recently. It's probably somewhere between 100 and 150 database tables in the app. Um, and it's not easy to, to keep things organized if you just if you just do things the same way that you did things in the very beginning and you continue those habits indefinitely it'll get you into not a great place um i've i've said before that rails is great for giving you leverage um and convenience and stuff like that you can build something really quickly um but no framework rails included can give you structure beyond a certain size. After you get beyond a certain size, it's up to you to impose that structure. Anyway, that's my context. Um, maybe you can share some of what you've worked on Gusto and the challenges you've had and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. And yeah, you, you're mentioning about kind of comparative sizes of, of apps. And uh, one thing I tried a little bit about in my talk is that the uh, measure that we use you know, the, what we use to measure the size of a Rails app, uh, th there's lots of different ways to slice and dice it. You know, we could say um, the number of files in the code base. You know, we could say that the number of contributors in the code base, the lifespan of the code base. A lot of times, I think, when people are often talking about scaling a large, rap, a large app, they're referring to um, performance characteristics like the throughput, uh, you know, the number of the rates of asynchronous and synchronous transactions, you know, background jobs, requests to the server. And Gusto sits in an interesting place, I think, here, because we are very different than um, uh, Twitter or maybe something a little bit more on the same order of magnitude, Shopify. Uh, Shopify has uh, such a, a large rates of web requests you know Matt, you know they've published uh blog posts on the rate of web requests on black friday and, and other large shopping days but gusto i mean we have seasonal spikes too during tax season and, and other things you know gusto for context where uh um we help small businesses uh run payroll offer health insurance benefits and otherwise you know manage help manage your small uh business and uh, in my ideal world, customers actually don't need to go into Gusto very often at all. If we're doing our job really well, then people aren't really logging on to the site because we're taking care of everything they need. We're managing their payroll, their payroll taxes, their health insurance benefits. So Gusto's um, kind of largeness is better measured in terms of its domain complexity. Working with payroll, payroll taxes, all, all these things has so much complexity and that's uh you know essential intrinsic complexity of the domains you know of, of codifying the law codifying payroll taxes codifying 
compliance and regulation around health insurance benefits. And trying to manage all these moving parts has been an ongoing battle for Gusto as we've grown and offered more features. Um, so, yeah, so a lot, a lot of these, this tooling and, and the talk is kind of all about managing domain complexity primarily. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think about that book, um, um, Code Complete, which I read. I, I, I wouldn't say I read it. I like jumped around and read parts of it, um, yeah. which are, sounds like maybe you've you've uh, thumbed through that book also. Yeah, earlier on in my career, I, I had a hard time, a very short attention span at the time, but uh, tell me more. Yeah, I feel like my attention span is getting worse over time, not better, but um <laughs> Yeah, that's. I thought that was a really, really good book. Um, one of the first parts that I really like latched onto were the parts about object-oriented programming, and it it maybe made me think about some certain things in a new way that I hadn't before. Um, I wish I could remember what those new ways are, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I, I think um, I, I actually do remember a little bit. There were some things to do with uh, the concept of abstraction and what abstraction is and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of the stuff in the book was maybe stuff that was kind of um, not news to me, but I was I was in enthusiastic agreement with a lot of what I read. And so that was valuable to me because now there's a book that I can recommend to beginners when somebody asks, hey, can you recommend a good book about program? just, you know, a general book about programming? And now I have something and I can say Code Complete is really good because there's other books. Um, I don't know, like Clean Code, for example. Some people like have completely written off 100% of Clean Code, which I don't think makes a lot of sense. But um, there's like parts of Clean Code that I think are really good parts that I don't necessarily agree with, and then a whole bunch that I just don't understand. Mm. Um, but I felt like Code Complete was written in a way that I can understand. It was written in a way that just about anybody could understand if they have at least some familiarity with programming. I thought it was great. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think uh, um, oftentimes one thing I like to think about when I'm trying to sort of evaluate uh um, something I'm hearing about software and maybe lessons about software is uh, making a distinction between the principles and the tactics of the advice. And, uh, you know, I think about tactics as uh, um, GraphQL or REST or gRPC or something like this. Tactics are the implementation of of a principle, you know, and the, and the principle principles can apply across language, across frameworks. And I think they're a good place to start because often um, it's easy to get hung up on the, the tactic um, when we're really trying to apply a principle. And I think as it relates to, to this topic, the, the, the principles of, of modularization are the um, things I'm thinking about when I'm coming to, to Gusto's code base. And the, for me, the, primary principles of modularization and uh, I sort of cringe internally saying that because I feel like uh, you know there's books written about it so who am I to, to state but I think some really important ones are dependency management having explicit and 
coherence and systematic dependency management, uh, which is all about knowing what your code depends on to run. So I kind of actually separate this into um, a two by two matrix is the way I like to think about it. So on, on one dimension, I like to think I have implicit versus explicit. So an implicit uh, dependency is perhaps one where in your Ruby code base, you're shelling out to a system library, but you kind of just expect it to be there, but you haven't actually listed it as a requirement where an explicit dependency would be in your gem spec where you've listed, hey, I explicitly depend on this gem. Um, you know, you can also have it an implicit gem dependency where maybe you don't realize, but you're relying on a transitive dependency. You know, oh, you get the the rainbow gem, which uh, colorizes uh, fonts from Rubocop or something. And you're like, oh, I, I didn't realize I'm implicitly relying on that dependency. And um, sorry, if I can interrupt for wait, a second. Um, it might be good for us to to get a little more precise Sorry. around the term dependency because um, yes. that could be interpreted a few different ways like obviously one kind of dependency is a is a library like a gem or something like that um, yep. you could also think about your dependencies in on the level of your code like um, one class depends on another class or something like that and Absolutely. so when we're talking about dependencies right now are we talking about all the kinds of dependencies or are we just talking about like gems and stuff like that or, or what sense are we talking about yeah awesome awesome question uh so i'm gonna give a pretty broad definition i, I don't know if it's gonna be helpful but i've always thought of a of a dependency the definition i think captures what I'm thinking about is any assumption that your code relies on in order to produce the desired impact to the people you're serving. So perhaps your dependency could be, well, we assume that we have this gem available uh, in order. And if we don't have the gem, then we can't execute this code. So we can't produce value for customers. Um, if, you, if your code expects a certain process out of band, it expects the, the user to be using it in a certain way, that actually can still be a dependency. Your code assumes someone uses the software in a certain way, but it might be implicit. And then you can also represent that implicit dependency explicitly by changing the interface to your tool so it's clear that you expect a certain usage pattern. I see, okay. Um... Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure if I would have given the same. I'm not saying I disagree necessarily. I don't think I would have given the same answer. So that's interesting. But I spend more time thinking about just maybe because of the size of the app that I work on and the nature of my day-to-day -day coding work and stuff like that. I find myself spending more time thinking about dependencies like at the code level rather sure. than at the library level and stuff like that. Um but there's something that I'm thinking about that might be an interesting thing for us to touch on, which is, you know, you're talking about modularity mm -hmm. and gems. And it's making me think about my list of gems for my application. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing with that is like, okay, I'm going to use an extreme example to illustrate a point. Sure. Let's say... In your list of gems, you have 1,000 gems in your gem file. And it's just, you know, there's there's no grouping. It's just 1,000 gems. Yep. Um, you have 
no easy way of knowing which of those gems are needed for which areas of the application. Yes. Yeah, and and it's similar with um with code dependencies where like um well, that's that's not a that's a half-baked thought or maybe even less, so I'll save that for not right now. Um but what you said got me thinking about that. And so maybe I'm I'm kind of guessing where you're headed um and and combining this with when I talked with Kelly Sutton, maybe um, maybe part of what you do at Gusto is you address that problem by instead of having like a huge list of dependencies for the entire Gusto ecosystem, which would have that problem of there's there's it's not evident what belongs to what. Um, yep. Maybe you split that up so that the dependencies for a certain app or certain area of an app are grouped with the app itself so that the relationships are more evident. Exactly. And, and, you know, that, that all comes back to dependency management, being able to say, Hey, this piece of code relies on this, uh, this dependency in this case of Ruby gem dependency. And that kind of brings me to uh, one of the sort of primary drivers of, of the talk I gave which is around uh, the tool pack work. And uh, is this, have you heard of uh, this one? Yes, but only because of Gusto. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, so the tools are uh, originally written and released by Shopify, which uh, I really appreciate uh, Shopify's releasing that and, and sharing it um, with everyone. And we have latched onto it. And we, uh, well, let me share a little bit about, about what, it, what it does. So uh, let's see. So in Packwork, uh, you start with a package. And a package, it, all it is, is a folder of code with a package.yaml at the root of that folder. And what Packwork does is, uh, more or less, is that it models your entire code base as a directed graph of packages. So every, every package is a node. And what it does essentially is Okay, sorry, let me let me um briefly yes. interrupt you there if I may. Um I've heard that term before, directed graph. What oh, is yes. that? Yeah, so a uh, directed graph is um uh, a graph where, where where a graph is uh uh nodes uh that's uh and edges. You know, uh, you have you have a, a node which can represent anything um you know, conceptually. Uh, and edges are represent relationships between two nodes. So a directed graph is a type subset type of graph where node relationships between nodes have directions. So there's a, they're basically have an arrow between the nodes. Okay, that makes total sense. Okay, thanks. Uh, continue. Yeah. So um, Packwork uh, models the the code base as this directed graph. And the way it works is that it uh, finds all of the files within a package. It says, "Oh, these are these are all the files that are in this folder of code." And um, again, p- please interrupt me if at any time it's uh, unclear. You know, sometimes being too deep in a problem, it, 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 you can get into the weeds a little. Uh, but basically, it parses all of the files in a package, and it holds onto a list of all of the constants that uh, are defined within that. Oh, uh, well, let me actually back up for a second. It 
holds on to a list of all of the constants that are referred to within a package. So when I say a constant is referred to, it's just you just type it out. You type out a, a constant, you know, in as like a class. A constant includes classes and modules. So a constant class or module is referred to uh, from one package, and then Packwork will draw an arrow between the package that is doing the referring and the package that defines uh, that constant class or module. So that's kind of the first major kind of representation it holds on to. Okay. And then the really cool part is uh, with Packwork, you define a sort of a shape of that graph, uh, an architecture. So you might say, well, this package should rely on that package, but it shouldn't rely on that other package. It should only rely on these packages. Also, there's another component, which is every constant class or module is declared public or private in the language of Packwork. So every time there's a reference from one constant class or module to uh, you know that exists in another package, Packwork will determine if this reference is what is referred to as a dependency violation or a, a privacy violation. So dependency violation is when you're using a something from a, from a package without including it in your list of dependencies uh, in the package. And a privacy violation is when you're using a constant class or module that the other package has uh, declared private. And what Packwork will do is it'll basically generate a big to-do list for you. It's a big, uh, it's like a Rubocop to-do list of, hey, here are all the dependency and privacy violations. So in this way, it gives you this amazing framework for first stating, this is what I think my architecture should look like. I think it should have these packages. I think this is the relationship between them. But You're blowing my it, mind right now. This, it blew our mind too when yeah. we first discovered Yeah. Okay, so I think I understand why this is so great. Um, but maybe it's not maybe it's not obvious to everybody listening, um, especially if somebody hasn't had the the context to be able to to grasp it. Sure. Um, and I'm gonna ask or 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 maybe I'll put it this way, I'll raise a few topics for discussion. Sure. Um and, and maybe I'll ask a few questions too. First, I'm going to say some things I don't mean and ask a question that I, I don't really think this, but I'm going to ask it just because I'm curious what you'll say. Sure thing. Um, this all sounds like really complicated. Why don't you just like write code and like make it work? Uh, so great point. And uh, definitely have explicitly or implicitly heard, heard that sentiment. Uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Part. So, yeah, it's a really great question. Why do we even care about this? This sounds like kind of a bunch of, maybe it sounds like a bunch of academic nonsense. I'm like, hey, I'm not, I'm not thinking about this now. Why are you asking me to think about this? And what I usually say is we are thinking about this, but we're thinking about it at times and places that are really inconvenient. So we're thinking about it, we're forced to think about it when we are debugging an incident and we and we think to ourselves I have no idea how this code works I'm I'm stepping through the stack trace 
I'm, I'm trying to follow the code, sort of doing my own like little static analysis of the code base, and I'm completely lost. I, I, I'm spider webbing throughout the whole application. It's hard to make heads or tails of things. Um, I'm thinking about it when I want to make a change to my data schema. I want to make a migration. And I realized that another team is uh, perhaps they're querying my table directly, or maybe more likely they're using the active record model, uh, you know, for my table, and they're making mutations to my table without me really knowing it. And and I and I realized that, oh shoot, this is not really the intended use of this data. Uh, one more way I think is is a little more salient uh, is. Uh, there was this Sandy Metz talk, I forget which one, but uh, she prompts the audience to think about what, how, how they think about their code base, like to visualize their code base. And then she proceeds to the next slide. And it's kind of like a picture of spaghetti, basically. And she says, is this kind of what you were thinking? And everyone laughs because it's kind of true. And uh, uh, recently we published a picture of our code base before this big I saw that in your talk. Yeah, so it's in the talk. And also, if you want to see, uh, so you can see it in the talk and also in the Gusto blog post, which uh, we mentioned we can drop in the show notes. And right at the top of that blog post is a picture of our system graph. And it's pretty chaotic. It's uh, it, it, it kind of arrows going everywhere. You can't really track um, what talks to what. And that is kind of what it feels like to work in a really big system where people are really organically adding relationships between parts of the system without having a really intentional uh, and systematic process for managing the overarching system, you know, for managing the dependencies, for managing the interfaces between subsystems. So, so to kind of sum it up, I guess, uh, I guess the reason I think it's so important to think about this is because we we have to think about it always, but implicitly and in times that are inconvenient and in times marred with confusion and urgency. So <laughs> by making it a putting at the forefront of the development process, by having us think about how every new change uh, may affect the overall system graph using some kind of basic ideas, two basic ideas. We should be explicit what we depend on and attempt to do so acyclically, which means we don't form a cycle. You know, if A depends on B, B shouldn't depend on A. And that also applies transitively for like A, B, C, and then C depending on A. And that's one big principle. And the other is having a clear distinction between public and private. Because with Rails, one of its most amazing uh you know, value props is uh, Zeitwork. I mean, one of its many amazing value props. You know, with Zeitwork, uh, you don't need to uh, requ use require statements. You can reference any other part of the code, uh, but that kind of leads to its, uh, it becomes very confusing what you are supposed to call and not call. So I, I hope that provided some clarity. Yeah. Question. Yeah, I, um, I liked, I liked your answer to that, um, and there are some things that I could maybe complement that with. Um, there's like 
a bazillion things that I want to say and ask right now. Um, my head is just swimming with with thoughts. But um, maybe the first thing I'll say is this: um, you know, code has two jobs. One job is to be executed, and the other job is to be maintained. Um, and mm-hmm. I think when a person is just getting started with programming, they're focused almost a hundred percent on the execution aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, as they probably should, because it's pretty hard just to get something to work when you're when you're getting started. Um, sure. But people, including I, I made this mistake myself. People will give variable names like uh, X, Y, Z, stuff like sure. that, just one letter names, and they make no sense. And there seems to be this urge to make things seem all computery, and so people will like abbreviate uh, password to pass WD and stuff like that. Uh, for some reason, people are like attracted to that. Anyway, yes. um, I, th- I think once people gain some experience and work on some code bases that are very difficult to work with, they start to gain an appreciation for that second job of code, which is to go the 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 job to be understood and maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it really makes sense to say like they're equally important or one's more important than the other or, or anything like that. It's just like. Both have to be present or else you're going to have problems. Absolutely. Um, And so the question becomes, how can we keep a code base in a sufficiently understandable state that we can actually work on it? Because I don't know about you, Alex, but I've worked on code bases that are so difficult to understand that they can't actually be worked on and we're painted into a corner and we're stuck and the business is just screwed because we like can't do anything Mm. um and so there's there's some things that might sound like well duh but like um they're true and they're often violated um principles like uh uh small things are easier to understand than big things Mm -hmm. um and that's like you know that's a very banal obvious statement um but it has implications that might not be obvious uh, and and it relates to modularity. I think like when we make things modular, you know, when we take a big application and break it into smaller modular parts, we do that because small things are easier to understand than big things. And so we're um, you know we can't make it so that these modules of the whole system are entirely isolated and independent that would be better if we could because then they would be more understandable than if they talk to each other but we can at least make them as modular as we can and make the you know you're talking about directed graphs you can make the edges between those two modules be as few as possible because the fewer the connections between two things the fewer things there are to to understand. And that's true at that granularity of like taking a huge system and breaking it into separate apps or something like that. And just uh, a a composition of classes. Because like if you imagine a a directed graph of classes, if you have a whole bunch of edges, you know, for example, let's take uh, four classes, for example. If you imagine four dots on a page and imagine every dot connected to every other dot that it can be yeah that's a lot of edges yep and each one of those edges represents a piece of understanding that's necessary because it's like 
in order to understand something, you often have to understand all of its dependencies also. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so again, that that's where modularity is very helpful for understanding. And the problem, and, and okay, this brings me to like why pack work is uh is blowing my mind right now. And apologies to Kelly Sutton. Uh I didn't understand this when you explained it, Kelly, but I'm I'm understanding it now for whatever reason. Um, you know, the the as you said, the great and terrible thing with Rails is that everything's available all the time. Um if I establish an active record model called patient, I can access the patient model anywhere without having to have any kind of include statement or anything like that. Yep. Um, and that's that makes things really convenient early on. Yep. But maybe as things grow, it's like, okay, hang on a second. I have this patient model. Where is this patient model used in the app? It's, it's, it's a lot of... Um, well, it's maybe tedious, time-consuming, difficult to go and find all those places. And like yep. when you're changing something, it's it's helpful if you can be sure what trickle-down effects those changes are going to have. And if you can't find everywhere that something is used, then it's going to make you very hesitant to make changes, and that's just going to make everything more difficult. Um, yep. So I wanted to say that stuff. Now I want to touch briefly on, um, you, you've talked a couple times about public and private. Yes. This, in my experience, is a hugely misunderstood concept. So let's talk about that for a second, if we may. Um, What's the purpose of having like private methods and classes, private anything? Why do we do that? Yeah. So I want to respond to that. But if I may just share some thoughts on the some of the previous stuff Um, around... um, what was I going to say? Uh, so, 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 so modularizing, uh, oh, you're saying uh, maintaining and executing. So uh, if code, if we don't want to ever change the behavior of a code, if it doesn't have bugs, if it's working, then we have no reason to ever modularize it. If there's not new value we want to extract from it, if there's not a bug we want to fix, if the customer isn't asking for a new feature, there's no reason to change it. And, uh, Modularization has a cost. That cost is both uh, uh, pre-known. It's like you have to invest hours, and it also has risk. You know, we could change. Um, we can introduce a bug. You know, it even has. Uh, it can even make code more complex. Sometimes, coupling actually makes can make code less uh, complex. You know, take for example, uh, uh, maybe sort of butchering the history here at Augusto, but, you know, when we first offered uh, payroll, perhaps payments, paying people and running payroll were coupled, but maybe that allowed us to move more quickly than if they were, if we had to maintain two separate systems and and there was a boundary, because boundaries introduce indirection. You know, you have to think, you have to make these sort of jump into different contexts to understand something. So, and I say this because uh, a boundary in software is useful to have when, uh, I guess, when you need it. And which kind of brings me to the, the idea that what's kind of great about pack work is that you can choose what you modularize. You know, you don't have to, oftentimes, if you're trying to extract something into a gem or an engine, which uh, many listening may have done or, or may not have done, it often forces you to solve modularization problems 
in business areas that perhaps don't have a lot of impact, but you realize there's just like a technical sort of um, jumble that, you know, you know what I'm saying there? Like, you yeah, I think I do kind of go on a wild goose chase to, uh, to modularize, to extract something but with pack work. You can selectively say, Hey, all this stuff is unmodularized. Like I'm still referring to something that isn't extracted while focusing on, uh, what you do care about. And one more point I just really wanted to make sure I add is pack work is, uh, doesn't run in the runtime. It doesn't actually run at all when, it, uh, in production, totally development. It runs in a separate process and does all this analysis which I think makes it so low risk to add to your tool chain. Yeah, and, that was uh, kind of consistent with how I imagined it when you kind of analogized it to uh, Rubo, RuboCop. Um, yep. It's just kind of like, hey, just so you know, you're doing these things that is, are, are going to make your life harder, and here's a list of things that if you were to fix them would probably make your life easier. Yep. So, yeah, to, to answer your question, can you repeat it for me? Uh, why public? Why yeah, yeah. What's the purpose of having the the concept of private stuff? Yeah, so really good question, and it is uh, uh, it's a hard question to answer because it's it, it, it it's deceptively complicated, I think. But I, I guess it's the fact that so much of software, I think, is all about managing complexity, and so much of managing complexity is about hiding complexity or creating abstractions over things that are complex. You know, I mean, uh, perhaps um, we, we, we take for granted the fact that we can add two numbers in Ruby and we don't, most of us, myself included, don't really necessarily think about how that works, but something under the hood, I guess, is calling C Something in C, maybe, I don't know, is doing some sort of binary arithmetic. I don't know how to, I probably should, but I don't know how to do binary arithmetic. And that's great. All I need to think about is the interface to addition. When I think about adding two numbers, all I have to think is, oh, uh, I get a number, I put an operator after I say one plus one, and I get another number out of it. And that hides such an amazing amount of complexity. It takes for granted that we can add two numbers and we get a result, but there, you know, decades and decades and hundreds and thousands of uh, engineering years under making that so easy for us. And that same concept uh, scales to, to, to so many things. I, uh, I remember trying to like, I was messing around with um, some like Apple, iOS APIs, and they give you an API to create a, you, you, you can point your iPhone, like iPhone 12, at something, and it creates a 3D mesh for you. It, it creates like a, a fully, you know, live streamed mesh of the environment. <clears throat> it took probably a lot of PhDs to figure out how to make that so easy and to give you an API where you you get this mesh that even without a degree in uh, um, computer vision, you can suddenly stand on the shoulders of giants so easily. And I think that applies uh, and is kind of relatable with all sorts of domains. You know, take uh, Stripe's APIs to uh, make a payment or 
have to plug Gusto, Gusto's APIs to run payroll. You know, we just released, uh, I think it was embedded.gusto, where now people can actually run embedded payroll in their own uh, applications. And they don't have to necessarily know all of the details of payroll. They just use a, a simplifying API that abstracts complexity. So public and private, that's all about making it uh, hiding the parts that are implementation details that aren't uh, necessarily what you need the consumer of an API to know to be able to use something and then presenting a facade on top of complexity that allows people who aren't necessarily domain experts to still get a, a ton of value out of a piece of code. Hmm. Um, so this is another case where my answer might be a little bit different from your answer. Um, sure. Um, but okay. So the way, so I don't disagree with anything you said, but I think the things you said, I would put more under the umbrella of abstraction rather than public private. Mm. Here's my conception of why we have public and private and why it's useful. It's two things. Um, one is, and I'm going to talk about classes, even though I've no, I know we've been talking about, um, private and public, uh, methods and classes and stuff like yeah. that it can be applied at any level of granularity yep. but i'm going to talk about methods in classes because that's what i have experience with mm -hmm. um so the the first reason for private methods the first benefit of it is that it reduces the public surface area of a yes. class's api and the reason that is good is because the more the, the the greater the surface area of a class's public API, um, I, I conceived of this uh, a idea that I call understandability cost. So uh, if you have a, a class with one method, it has a low understandability cost. If you have a class uh, with a hundred methods, it has a higher understandability cost. Totally. And then if you have a composition of classes, uh, let's let's say for example. One class has eight public methods. The other class also has eight public methods. Those two things could combine in like 64 possible ways. And then mm -hmm. let's say, let's go back to that other example. One class has one public method. The other class also has one public method. There's only one way for those two things to combine. And mm -hmm. so um, the more you can cut down the the public surface area of your classes, the lower your understandability costs are going to be. So that's one benefit of making methods private. Um, and the, the other benefit that I see is that it tells you what's safe to refactor. So like Absolutely. anything that's private, you know, and unless you're, you know, doing the, uh, uh, unless you're using send in a way that calls private methods, so you're defeating the purpose of your private method benefits. If you're not doing that, then you can be sure that everything under that private line, uh, you can do whatever you want with it. You can delete methods. You can combine two yep. methods into one. You can just go nuts in that area, and, and you're not going to affect any outside clients. So those are the two benefits. Yep. I've seen all kinds of wrong answers on why private uh, methods are good. Like, oh, it's so you can... Um, it's it's so you can take your details of what happens and put that in a different place. And it's like, 
well no like you can do that with public methods too so like and it's crazy like if you google private methods like the first answers that come up are just like completely totally wrong and people are like piling on and be like yeah that's right but there's no that's that's wrong so anyway um i i happen to think about that um a lot at one point in time because i just got so like frustrated by all these wrong answers that's why i like had, had thought about that so much so i think it probably applies at the level of classes and modules and stuff too because it's obviously it's just the same it's the same concept applied uh at a broader at, at a higher lower level of granularity or whatever no doubt yeah those are all solid points and and i find myself developing my own kind of thoughts about this and 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 uh yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point about kind of this, the surface area, thinking about the ratio of public and private. And it's kind of funny, I sometimes think about this, that in, in Ruby, uh, everything is default public, um, especially in Rails. You know, you, you make a class, it's public. People can use it by default. And a uh, uh, big thing with Hackwork, the way that we use it, is that everything is actually private by default. And you intentionally make it public and this is a it's it's like a small change tactically but it's a really big change in terms of the mindset um and uh how's it going with this well that's yeah that makes so much sense to me and and by the way that's the policy that i follow with classes if it can be made private i do make it private um Mm -hmm. for for that same reason to keep the public API surface area as small as possible. You know, it's a fun uh, maybe experiment for listeners is to open up your Rails console and try to find a method, sort of what, you know, some people call it like a God model or some universal model, you know, the company at at Gusto or, you know, different for different companies. And for for us, we do company dot... uh, new dot public methods and then um, company dot public methods that'll be the instance and static public methods and uh, dot count and just take a look at how many how many methods are on that uh, active record model um, you'll depending on your application you, you might see a couple thousand two three thousand so it's not really possible i guess for someone to just look at that object to introspect it in the console you know in like a debugging session and really discover how they're supposed to use it how did the the people who wrote the code intend for you to use it and that brings us to that problem you mentioned where they very well might end up using anything which means that the people maintaining that code have to maintain everything and anything you change in the code base could potentially break a part of the system in an unforeseen way. So having a, a small, a very, you know, proportionally much smaller percent of things public and the majority of things being private uh, does just what you said. It, it allows you to systematically understand what what might break things for consumers and, and what might not, which is actually very liberating. Uh, at first it seems constraining. You're like, oh man, now I have to make this decision. But it frees you up to improve internal structure, uh, to limits and and make sure you're supporting. For me, a lot of public API is all about making a promise 
to people. It's about saying more or less like, hey, I've promised to support this and maybe I haven't promised to support this. And uh, um, just one way to think about it. A lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And the bigger the team, the more true that is because it's like um, declaring a public method is kind of like going and publicly declaring a, a promise like saying hey uh i'm gonna give you twenty dollars or something like that that's a bad example because you can only give one person twenty dollars um anyway you know it's it's like publicly making a declaration that says like you're you're gonna be available for such and such thing indefinitely and then people come to depend on that um and so the longer that's out there and the more chances people have had to to come to depend on that thing, the harder and more expensive it gets to change that thing because then in order to change that public method or whatever it is, you it, it, it touches all the usages of that public method. And so you have a big job in your hands, um, whereas that's that's not as hard early on or when things are smaller or obviously if it's a private method, then there's no cost to... Well, it, it, when it comes to external clients, there's no cost to changing a private method. You got it. Yeah. Um, so, Alex, obviously there are a million different directions we could take this and a whole bunch of stuff we could still talk about. But sadly, mm-hmm. we're short on time. Um, but this has been great. Uh, this is all stuff that I love to think about that I rarely get to talk about with people. Because, um, you know, like, I don't know, a lot of people like to talk about tools and technologies and gems and stuff like that i find that fewer people want to talk about organization and structure and all that stuff so that's really enjoyable for me to get this uh rare chance to be able to discuss these things um anyway before we go is is there anywhere first of all any closing thoughts that you want to share and in addition to that anywhere people should go online if they want to find out more about you and what you're up to and that kind of stuff sure thing uh yeah uh, I really appreciate you, you having me here. I'm really, really passionate about this stuff. I love talking about it. Love organizing. And, you know, anyone, uh, feel free to email me at alex at gusto.com. And that's if you want to chat, you want to brainstorm, uh, you know, you have a question, you have feedback. We're also hiring. If you're interested in joining the, uh, uh, what we call sort of the gradual modularization team at Gusto, Shoot me an email. And that's my email. And then we have a Slack server. Uh, we'll put that, we'll put an invite link to to that in the, in the, in the show notes if that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, if you have any issues with the invite link, they've been finicky, just shoot me an email. But we'll put that there. And we're just trying to grow a community of, of, of anyone. Everyone is welcome to, to join. And of any experience level, everything and uh to to talk about these problems to talk about the solutions the approaches the confusions and and the the wins uh and more um you can jump on github.com slash ruby at scale which is the open source repository for a bunch of gems that we've released uh to you know as possible solutions to some of these problems uh yeah i think that's all All right, well, we'll put that stuff in the show notes, of course. And Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jason.